0: Well, this morning we continue our walk through Paul's letter to the Philippians. As we have mentioned before, Paul wrote this letter while imprisoned uh, in Rome. He was uh, physically shackled to guards, Praetorian Guard uh, to be exact. Uh, The Praetorian Guard were guarding him 24 7 because he was awaiting trial trial before Caesar. And at this point, as he writes this letter, he doesn't know how his life will end. I mean, he knows ultimately uh, that one day he will be with the Lord, but, uh, but he doesn't know what will happen at this trial. And so he's expressed to them, uh, he may uh, be convicted and may have to uh, face the sword and, and be executed, or he may be acquitted and, uh, and be able to uh, leave prison and go and visit these Philippians uh, again, which is what he hopes to do. And so he's been uh, speaking to them about this, about his impending uh, release from prison, whether again through death and immediately being with the Lord or coming to see them again. And if you go back in, uh, in the book of Philippians in this letter, uh, he's talking about that from verses 20 to 26 in in chapter 1. He's talking about this uh, death or release. And then as we mentioned, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, he encourages them. Look, he says, whether I come to see you or or whether I am executed, uh, I just want to stress this one thing to you. And the one thing that he stresses there is only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I'm come and see you or I'm absent, I might hear of this walk of yours. And then from basically chapter 1, verse 28, all the way through today's uh, passage, he expounds upon what that means. What does it mean to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What we see at the very end of our passage today, which is verses 17 and 18, is that he kind of returns briefly to the idea that he might be executed. If you look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Look, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial uh, offering of your faith. So what he's talking about there is he's now going back to what he had been talking about I may end up dying. I may end up receiving a bloody execution, uh, but even so, I rejoice. So that's kind of where we are now in the letter. And so we're, what we're going to be focusing on today is the follow-up to what he said last week and what we read uh, in, in verses 12 and 13. He's just told them, therefore, my beloved, as, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's again, it's, it's, it's yet saying again, live uh, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's already talked about various ways there to do that. And today, he's going to get into some specifics of how uh, they work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So our passage today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 14-14 through 18. And as always, I encourage you this morning to open your Bible and follow along as I read and keep it open as I uh, go through the passage because we'll be looking at specific words. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you'll find a Bible in the seat in front of you. Uh, and on that Bible, you'll find our passage on uh, page 981. It says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So as I said, verses 17 and 18, he kind of it's almost like wrapping up uh, the discussion of, he may die, He may be executed. So we're not going to focus too much on that. We'll be looking mainly at verses 14, 15, and 16. And as we look at those, what I want us to see is that Paul essentially tells us, when he says, when we, if the question we have is, how do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? How, how does this play out, uh, practically speaking? Well, he answers that in verse 14. He tells us what we are to do in verse 15 he tells us why we are to do it. And in verse 16, he tells us how we are to do it. So how are we to work out our salvation in fear and trembling? Let's look at verse 14, what we are to do. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, uh, there are some sermons that I preach, some passages that I work through that as I work through the passage, it takes some time to really for the Lord to apply that to my own heart. Sometimes I work through it and, and, and I have to dig and I have to really think about it and then after a while I think yeah you know what I do that too. I didn't think I did but after 10 hours in this text boy I can't believe how much I do this. This isn't that kind of text. Uh, the second I read this it struck me. Do nothing or do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do you know how many times Michelle has had to say something to the effect? I mean, over the the course of our marriage, which has been, what, 22 years now? 21? 21 years. 21 years, I mean, it must be millions of times by now where she has said something to me about, be joyful in all things. (laughs) You know, you're supposed to, be, not complain, right? <laughs> and then I grumble about that. So, you know, it doesn't stop me. It actually increases my grumbling. I mean, when I read this, I think, how, how is this even possible? How do you go without grumbling or disputing? I mean, he says in all things. That means when you're trying to watch the football game and the streaming is like you see the spinning wheel and uh, you're not supposed to grumble. You're not supposed to dispute when you're when the washing machine breaks for the fifth time no grumbling when you're stuck in traffic no grumbling when that weird kid sits next to you in school and all of your friends get up and walk away and now you're stuck with this weird kid that you never wanted to talk to no grumbling Uh, when you're late for work you're stuck stuck in the traffic jam when your knee starts hurting for no reason when you have to go in for yet another surgery apparently no matter what you're dealing with you are not to grumble about it. I have broken this law. I mean, this one one verse condemns me. If I even thought I followed the rest of God's law, this I have uh, definitely failed to do. You know, I thought about it this week. If If someone recorded every statement of my life, every thought that I had and every word that I said, and I was given a percentage of the amount of complaining versus the amount of times I gave thanksgiving to God, I think I'd be ashamed at the percentage. Now, that may not apply to you, but it certainly applies to me. Now, what does Paul mean here? Before we you know, start thinking wrong things about this, what does he mean Well, it's interesting, remember, Paul is an Old Testament scholar, and he uses this phrase, grumbling and disputing, which immediately takes you back to the Old Testament. If you go back to Exodus chapter 16, Moses has just led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And it says this, they set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. They have been out of slavery for two months. That's it. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, listen to this, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, and you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Think about this. Two months since they were enslaved in Egypt. Now, how are they reflecting and remembering back on that time? The way they're describing it here, it sounds like a never-ending feast at Fogo de Chow or something like that. It sounds like the greatest time they've ever had in their life. We ate to the full the meat pots in Egypt, and you've brought us out here. Now, is that the way it really was? Well, you go back and you, you read about what it really was like, and it says this in Exodus. Uh, they said, Pharaoh... "'set taskmasters over the people of Israel "'to afflict them with heavy burdens. "'They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, "'but the more they were oppressed, "'the more they multiplied and they spread abroad "'and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. "'So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves.' They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all of their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Look at the repetition there of how horrible their life was when they were in Egypt. And what did God do for them? God sent a rescuer. He led them out of slavery, and he's leading them to a promised land. And in the middle, they're experiencing some difficulty. So what do they do? They begin to grumble and they begin to say that they were better off in slavery than dealing with what they're dealing with in the wilderness. How does the Lord respond? Now you can imagine, you know, think think about if you're the Lord, you've just done all of this for the people of Israel And now they're grumbling two months in. The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now just pause for a second. I mean, just think about the incredible patience and love and kindness of God. That he would have this kind of uh, grumbling hit him. And and his answer is, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. For you ingrates. So, Exodus 16. So, Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, listen to what they say. At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. See, the people turned to Moses and Aaron and said, we were better off off in Egypt. But Moses said, your fight and your grumbling is not with me, it's with the Lord. That's who you're grumbling against. The one who rescued them from their bondage. The one who rescued them from their misery. The one who is leading them to the promised land. And the one who in the midst of this wilderness is providing daily for them. He's the one that they're grumbling against. And that's really what Paul is talking about. Ultimately what Paul is talking about is that the problem is that these people forgot who they were before God saved them. They forgot who they were before God saved them. They forgot what they were owed before God saved them. And they forgot the gift that they're getting despite what they should have gotten. And I think that's ultimately at the root of all of our grumbling as well. Why, why do we grumble? Why do I get a bad attitude and start complaining about all of these things in this world that happen to me that Paul calls light and momentary afflictions. And really, when I think about my life compared to the, so many people in this world, they really are light and momentary. There's really not that much to them. Why am I doing that? Why am I getting upset at all? Well, if I think about it really down deep, It's the fact that I'm forgetting who I was before the Lord rescued me. Before the Lord rescued me, I was a slave to sin. I was in darkness. I was in bondage. And the Lord came and rescued me anyway. Before he saved me, I was a rebel to his will. Before he saved me, I was at enmity with him. The God of the universe who could take away my life like that. I was his enemy, and he reached down, and he saved me. I forget what I was owed. I was owed death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. I was owed death, and I was owed hell, and God rescued me from that, and I forget how much the Lord cares for me as he's leading me to a guaranteed promised land. I was in darkness and slavery, headed for death, headed for judgment, and instead, because solely because of him, I'm headed for an eternal promised land face-to-face with the Lord. If, if that's true of me, what do I have to complain about? What is there in this life that could be worth me turning and grumbling to the Lord about. We talked last week about sanctification. Remember, we have been saved when we think about our salvation. There's a sense in which we have been saved, what Scripture calls our justification. There's a sense in which we will be saved, our glorification and there's that sense in the middle that we are talking about that we are being saved our sanctification sanctification means being made more holy remember sanctified is being set apart for God's use being set apart to be holy set apart from this world and if sanctification means being made more holy then it doesn't mean, necessarily, being made more happy. See, I think so often we get those confused. We think that it's God's job to make us happy. When Scripture says it's His job to make us more holy. And whatever it takes to make us more like Him, to make us more like Christ, to make us more set apart, is what He will use in our life. So the question that I had then, is there... Never any room for some kind of venting. Is there no place for sharing difficult? Because sometimes that's what I get when I get frustrated with Michelle. Sometimes I think, well, what you're telling me to do is pretend, is slap a smile. I'm really upset by this thing and you want me to just kind of like pretend I'm happy and just act and really lie. Uh, about how I feel. So how do we, if we're not to grumble, is there a way that we can share what we're upset about? I think there is. As I thought about it this week, I think the important thing is that when we share what we're upset about, we have to be careful about the people that we share the things we're upset about with. We need to share those things, not with people who will encourage us in our grumbling. We need to share those things with those who will help us be more Christ-like. In other words, we, I think, are really good at seeking out people that are going to placate us and encourage us in the things that we don't like. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot more fun to go to somebody and say, I am ticked off at this, aren't you? Yeah. I am too. Good. Let's be ticked off together. That's fun. That's fun to do. It's a lot less fun to go and say, you know, brother, this thing is really bothering me and I probably shouldn't be so upset about it. Can you tell me where I'm going wrong here? You try to help me to understand maybe what God is doing in my life? That's a much better, that's the way to go. Uh, you think about, uh what God says in, or what, what you see people do in the Psalms. People go to God and they say, Lord, I feel like you've put me here. Lord, I'm coming to you because I need to understand why you're doing this to me. That's not grumbling, right? That, that's recognizing God is sovereign over my life and he's done this and I'm struggling with this. Lord, help me to understand I get together with, um, with a particular uh, member of the church once a month, we try to get together. And he'll tell you if you talk to him, I'm not going to say who it is, but uh, he'll say that every time he and I get together, that week is usually kind of a, the hardest week of the month for either one of us. It's amazing. When we get together, the, the amount of things that have happened to us that week, sometimes that day, before we get together, uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, sometimes he'll share with me what's going on. I think, I, don't, I can't believe like all five of those things happened to you this week. We share what we're upset about. We share what we're struggling with, but it never stops there. The reason it's so good to get together with this brother is because when we share with each other what we're struggling with and what, what has happened to us this week, we talk about what God is doing in this. What do you think God is trying to teach us in all of this? What lesson did God have for us? How is God at work? In other words, we aren't grumbling and complaining. Or even if we begin with grumbling and complaining, we don't end there. We always turn to God's word. Well, Paul says, don't dispute either. Well, again, I read that and I said, wait, isn't there room for some kind of debate? I mean, after all, didn't Paul stand up to Peter and challenge him? Aren't we called to challenge one another? Aren't we called to, to debate people apologetically, to stand up for the faith? Yes, we're called to do all of those things. But it's interesting that word dispute If we look in the New Testament, specifically in Paul's letter to the Romans, we find him using that word, that exact word, again. And here I think we have an example of what not to do. Romans 14, Paul says this, as for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. That phrase, don't quarrel over opinions, it's the exact same word used here for dispute. He says this, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is therefore his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Think about your disputing. Think about the things that you get into arguments with fellow believers about. How often, Christian, is your disputing actually over things central to the gospel? And how often is it what Paul is talking about here in Romans 14? How often is it instead quarreling over opinions? I think so often that's where we go. That's one of the things, and Jeff brought this up a, a few weeks ago in his sermon, It's one of the things that is so valuable about church membership and taking vows in front of one another. Because what we are vowing to one another are those five things, those five vows. Now they have implications in lots of ways, but the things that we ought to be holding one another accountable to are those things. And so often those aren't the things we're disputing about. So often it's It's things that are mere opinion. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't grumble and don't dispute. Now notice verse 15, his reasoning for not grumbling or disputing. Why we are to live life this way. He says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now when Paul says that we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that we will be blameless and innocent, he's not talking about sinlessness when he says blameless and innocent. He's not saying, look, if you don't complain anymore, you'll be sinless. The word translated here, blameless, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That word blameless, same word is used to describe Job. The beginning of that book, where God says, My my servant Job is blameless. Again, Job wasn't sinless by any means. But when we think about what blameless and innocent mean, one New Testament scholar puts it this way When referring to people, it carries the notions of simplicity of character, of purity, of sincerity. These two adjectives, when taken together and applied to the Philippians, signify that no one would be able to lay any accusation or blame against them because they were pure and sincere. That's what Paul is getting at. And he sums it all up by saying, essentially, you're going to be blameless and innocent, dot, 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 children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now again, Paul is pointing us back to the Old Testament, the same exact situation that he pointed us to without, with the grumbling and, and, and the disputing. When we go back to that situation in Deuteronomy 32, Moses spoke. He said, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then he talks about Israel. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. God had called Israel to be his children. In fact, the Old Testament calls Israel my son. God had called Israel, and he called them to be holy. He called them to be set apart. He called them to be his people in the midst of a sinful world. What did Israel instead do? Well, as Moses speaks here, Israel walked away from God. They forgot his statutes. They grumbled and complained. They did what they wanted to do, and instead of being Set apart from the world, they became like the world around them. They became, they were no longer his children, but they became a crooked and twisted generation. Instead of reflecting God's character to the rest of the world, they became like the rest of the world. Crooked. Crooked means what it sounds it means bent or twisted, morally bent. Twisted, departing from a standard, perverted. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is reminding us as he's speaking to the church, he's saying what Israel became is what the world is. This world, the world that you have been called out of, the world that you have been called to be set apart from, is a twisted and crooked generation. It is perverted and as we look at the world around us, we can see that. The world around us, our society, is bent. It is twisted. It has perverted and twisted all kinds of things. It has perverted and twisted the meaning of love. It has perverted and twisted the meaning of life. Why we're here on this world. What the goal of life is. Our goal as human beings created in the image of God Our goal should be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How often do you hear that in the world? That that's our goal in life. Our world has twisted everything. It continues to twist things. Sex has been twisted. Marriage has been twisted. Gender has been twisted. Humanity and self has been twisted. Uh, Up has become down. Down has become up. Everywhere you look, things are bent and twisted away from the way that God's word says they should be. But lest we think that it's somehow worse now than it's always been, maybe in some ways things have gotten worse, but all we have to do is look back at Genesis chapter 6, almost the very beginning of the Bible, and what do we find there? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is, think of that statement there. That's an incredible statement. Biblically speaking, the whole world is in darkness. It has been and it is now. Michelle and I (coughs) thought we were uh, getting a piano. Michelle has been wanting probably since we got married Uh, and and a a, a real uh, acoustic upright piano. We don't have room for a a grand, but an upright fits against the wall, and we've had digital pianos the whole time. And we thought that there was a guy who was giving away a Yamaha upright piano. He advertised for it. Uh, He said, look, I'm an old guy. I'm deaf. Uh, It was my wife's. And I'd love to just give it to somebody who will give it a good home. The only thing you'll have to do is pay for shipping. There were pictures of this piano, uh, an email. We communicated with the guy back and forth. He even said, oh, you're a music, you're a piano teacher and you've got kids and they all play? Oh, wonderful. Just send me pictures of them playing when when you get the piano and that'll be payment enough for me. We couldn't wait to get this piano for Christmas. So we paid for the shipping. The shipping was either going to be $500 for two weeks of shipping, uh, like $1,000 to get it in a week, and like $1,500 to get it in two days. So we paid the $500 to get it in two weeks, and it turned out to be a scam. So no piano, and we're out $500. But when I thought about the amount of effort that this guy put into stealing money from people. How crazy is that? That shows you how dark and twisted this world is. This guy could have used all of that ingenuity and, and, and all of the work, I don't know how many hours, I mean, to actually act and go back and forth and act like you're an old man who wants pictures. The other day... Michelle and I were trying to, uh, well, really Michelle more than I, trying to get my dad signed up for, uh, switch over his uh, uh, wireless uh, from from, uh, T-Mobile to something else. And here we were, the three of us, standing around in a circle, and and the new person's talking on the phone and asking some question about my dad, and he's answering And we're all answering and we're saying, yes, this is my dad, yes, he's saying, yes, this is me. And she said, I still need some kind of security code that I supposedly sent you. This thing took like four hours to make happen because of the security hoops that we had to jump through to switch this thing over. Why do we even have to do that? Why did it take four hours? It's because we live in a twisted world. It's because so many people out here are trying to steal things and break in and steal people's ID and all of these other things that we, it took that long to get my dad just shifted over. Paul is saying, Israel, God's chosen children, they failed to look like God's children. Instead, they look like the world. And he's saying, Christian, I want you to look like God's child. In other words, he's saying, I want you to become by reputation, who you already are by status. Remember, in Christ, you are already blameless. In Christ, you already are seated in the heavenlies. But he wants us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and work out our own salvation in fear and trembling so that by reputation, we become who we already are by status. We see all throughout that believers are spoken of as lights. For you are all children of light. We are not of the night or the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christian, you have been rescued from darkness, and you've been brought into the light. So live as someone who's in the light. Walk in the light. My dad calls it being a living light. I shared that in Sunday school, uh, but um, I was a valet uh, as a roughly 21-year-old. And at that time, the Lord was really growing me in my faith, and I was listening to uh, all kinds of Christian tapes every day and reading my Bible every day. And unbeknownst to me, there was a guy working with me who was observing me every day, seeing if I would... Uh, be who I, who, who I claimed. I was claiming to be a Christian. He knew I was a Christian. I said I was a Christian. I told him I read the Bible, uh, and he was waiting for me to uh, essentially show my true colors. He was waiting for me to just one day go out and party with the rest of them. He, he knew it was going to happen. I didn't know he was watching me. It wasn't until about nine years later That I had preached a sermon in a church and this couple came up to me and both of them were crying the mother especially I didn't know who they were they both walked up and hugged me and the mom said I want to thank you for what you did for my son and I said who is your son and she said my son worked with you he was valet parking cars with you nine years ago and he watched you He had fallen away from the faith. He had rejected his faith. And because you lived the faith, he's now a Christian and he credits it to you. I had no idea. I didn't know this was going on. And yet, all along, he was watching me. We can be a living light, but only if we walk as children of the light. How do we do this? Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We can walk as children of the light. We can live this way if we hold fast to this word of life. How did the world get so twisted in the first place? What happened to the world? Well, It got so twisted because of a twisting that happened at the very beginning. If you go back to the fall, it was Satan who twisted the word of life. It was Satan who was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Satan twisted God's word. He twisted the word of life. And Eve, what should she have done? She should have said to him, I know you're wrong. Whatever you're saying has got to be wrong because it counters the God whose word is perfect. But she didn't. Instead, she took God's word and she took Satan's word and she weighed them on the scale of her own reasoning and what she thought looked better to her. She placed God's word on the scale of her own judgment. The Bible, scripture, is called the canon. Canon means standard. It means rule. If you think of the Bible, the Bible is basically, it's like, it's like a yardstick. And our arm is like our own reasoning and rationality. And our arm is constantly falling. Our arm is always dropping. And we need to constantly bring that yardstick back and place our arm against the yardstick and see where it is that we are missing the boat. Satan said, "Half God said? And that's what he's been doing throughout history. All throughout history and even today, the Bible is questioned. The Bible is doubted. The Bible is rejected. The Bible is thro- tossed aside. If we don't have this standard and if we don't hold it fast, then we won't shine as stars because we'll be doing what our own hearts desire. It's interesting that um, I think we've seen in recent years churches abandon part of this. Churches say, well, you know what, we're just not going to preach on that anymore. Because if we preach on that, then the world won't come in and hear what we're saying because they'll be so offended that they'll stay away and we want people to hear so we'll just not say what's offensive to them. It's interesting that when the churches stop saying everything that's in here, it's not the world that ends up looking like the church, it's the church that ends up looking like the world. We need to hold fast to the word of life. All of it. Paul says in 17 and 18 to close it out, he says, Your faithful lives are going to show that my effort was not in vain. One New Testament scholar says this Paul's pride on the day of Christ will be the Philippian spiritual growth rather than his own. I I resonate with that as a pastor. I can tell you that that I feel much more of a burden. Maybe this isn't good. I don't know. I should probably feel equally a burden for my own spiritual growth. But but Michelle can tell you, I I feel a huge burden in my life each week over your spiritual growth. That that is what keeps my heart restless. That's what sometimes I, I walk away and I think... Is anything that I'm doing making a difference? That's what Paul is saying. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This drink offering that Paul is saying, I might be poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering was a libation that was poured out in addition to the burnt offering. So there was an offering that was burned, and then as even pouring even more of yourself out, you'd you'd offer this drink offering and and pour some wine or something out on top of the burnt offering. Paul is saying, look, if what I've taught you leads to your spiritual growth, if it leads to you living as lights in the world, then I don't care if I die. I don't care if my life is poured out as an offering because it will be worth it. Paul is saying, I, my job down here is to give my all for Christ. And if, in giving my all, if it means your growth, then I'm happy. And you should rejoice as well. Notice how he calls their life of faith a sacrificial offering. Christian, I know because I've been there, I'm still there in a way, but but definitely when I was working out in the world, I know when I was a student in high school, when I was a student in college, at a secular college, I know how hard it is to be a living light in the world. Paul says it's a sacrifice, it's a sacrificial life. Living as lights in a crooked and twisted world is a sacrifice. But if you think about it, it's a sacrifice that you can't even compare with the sacrifice that Christ offered for us. Everything that Paul calls us to be here in this passage is exactly what Jesus was for us. He was blameless. He was innocent. He was a son of God without blemish. That that Greek word, without blemish, in the Septuagint, it's used to describe the sacrificial lambs that were brought to the altar. He was the light. Before we are the light, he was the light. As Christmas draws near, let us not forget that Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out of the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. Christian, you and I are called to live as children of light because on us the light has shone. We who were once in darkness are now in the light. And that's what we do when we gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper. We remember what he did for us.